1: Um, Tonight, we are so happy to have, back in his old neighborhood, um, Izzy Persik, uh, who most of you probably already know, um, is from uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina and uh, immigrated to the U.S. in 1996. Um, He got his MFA from uh, UC Irvine and was a recipient of a 2010 National Endowment for the Arts Award for Fiction. Um, He's also a 2011 Sundance Screenwriting Lab Fellow. And this debut novel of his shards um, is just truly a really impressive debut as evidenced by the many amazing reviews it's been getting. Um, it's an incredible, if you haven't already read it, it's uh, a very multi-layered story. It's just incredible to see how he um, pulls it all off. So I can't wait to hear um, what he has to read. Um, and help, please help me welcome Izzy
0: Persik. <laughs> Thank you so I'm sorry about the you know for all the people who started reading the book I'm gonna read the end so I'm just joking uh, salty food sorry um, um, yeah thank you for the uh, introduction um, and I think I'm just gonna start reading the book for you and then um, stop. After the first chapter, it's going to be like 20 minutes maybe, Um, but I think it's a nice little uh, kind of intro into the world of the novel, so this is called Cheese. As the KLM flight finally touched American soil, the white-knuckled Bosnians in the back, people for whom just a few months ago airplanes were but thin lines of cloud, silently crisscrossing the skies above the Godforsaken. Above their godforsaken villages erupted in spontaneous applause. I joined them despite the queasy feeling in my stomach, brought on by the cheese and fruit we had received somewhere over England. The cheese had been yellow and maybe rancid, and throughout the flight I'd hurried up and down the aisles in search of an unoccupied lavatory where, kneeling awkwardly in front of one tiny toilet or another, I had found myself unable to hurl. These people, my people, the refugees, they were fleetingly happy and stubbornly perplexed. They smiled, but also furrowed their brows at the unfathomable patter coming from the speakers. The plane came to a stop at the gate at JFK, but the little belt buckle next to the crossed out cigarette over our heads remained lit. We sat there, the man in front of me, a youngish fellow with a wife and a daughter and a mouth of cataclysmic teeth, stuck his head over the seat and peered at me through glasses. Are we there or are we just getting gas? He whispered to me in Bosnian, in Bosian, eyes, bul- eyes bulging, half fearful and half embarrassed. Despite his attempt at discretion, everyone heard him, and they turned to me, the only Bosnian on board with any English, for information. We're here, I mumbled, nodding. Murmurs of approval spread from seat to seat. The man turned back around. I thought so, I heard him say to his wife. Don't pretend you knew, she said. You always have to turn the harvest, co- harvest combine off before refueling, otherwise it's a fire hazard," he explained pointedly. Same goes for planes, machines a machine. Yeah, yeah, you know everything. Shut it, woman. It had begun with politicians fighting on television, talking about their nationalities, their constitutional rights, each claiming that his people were in danger. I thought we were all Yugoslavs, I said to my mother, although at 15 I knew better. Yet to live under a rock, not to see that the shit was about to hit the fan. I don't know why I said it. Maybe the communist message of brotherhood and unity had, had been so thoroughly drummed into my head that it surfaced robotically and overrode my actual experience. She told me to shut up and turn up the volume on the television. Then reports had started coming in. Sieges, civilian casualties, concentration camps, refugees, Croats and Muslims being slaughtered left and right by Serbian paramilitaries and by the Yugoslav People's Army who, as their actions made evident, seem not to belong to all the peoples of Yugoslavia. Which ones are we? I asked my mother, still playing dumb, hoping that my willful denial could erase the images on the screen, erase my fear, make everything normal again. Again, she told me to shut up and turn the volume even higher until the downstairs neighbor started broom-handling our floor and my mother had to turn the TV down. All at once, your nationality became very important. There were reports of Serbian paramilitaries stopping all men trying to flee Bosnia, ordering them to drop their pants and underwear to prove they were Serb. Being circumcised meant your ass. All the Bosnian cities and towns, if not overrun, were suddenly under siege. This went on for years. Civilians chopped down park trees, got buried in soccer fields, burned books and furniture, kept chickens on balconies, duct-taped their footwear, caught and ate pigeons, made makeshift stoves out of washing machines, grew mushrooms in basements, replaced broken windows with murky plastic, went nuts and jumped off buildings, drank rubbing alcohol, diluted in chamomile tea until it was no longer flammable, rolled herbal tea cigarettes in toilet paper, suffered, hoped, waited, fucked, Authorities emptied the jails and mental institutions because they couldn't provide for their inmates and patients. Thieves and murderers went back to their families. Lunatics walked around town doing funny things like comparing people to watermelons and sad things like freezing to death behind churches. Soldiers fought for all of them and for themselves. My father, a chemical engineer, got lucky and came up with the contraption and tur- turned industrial fat into edible fat and got paid 10,000 German marks by a small business entrepreneur in a war entrepreneur, and a war profiteer, which saved us. My mother ate just enough to survive because she felt so guilty about not being able to quit smoking. She rationed her cigarettes as much as she could, walking around the apartment like a restless ghost, playing her solitaire, counting seconds before the next one. Sometimes my brother and I stole a cigarette when the pack was close to full and hid it somewhere in the apartment just to pull it out unexpectedly when she didn't have any left, just to see her eyes light up for a moment. Later it would break our hearts to see her fingering the wool of the large tapestry in a corridor, looking for our stash, her her forefinger touching her lips, her eyes on fire. Oops, I lost my spot, I have to start again. (laughs) The airport corridors glowed majestically. The current of passengers moved us along. You could tell who was a refugee and who wasn't, facial expressions, postures, surety of stride. The natives and the tourists Tourists walked briskly, trying to get it over with, catch their next flight and be somewhere else. Their bodies were streamlined. The refugees, we walked like somnambulists, clutching our carry-ons, putting them between our bodies and, and the new world as if for protection. Hungry-eyed, we took in the wall posters advertising liquor in Disney World. The tiled floors, our stolid shoes, our knobby knees, our hands against these unfamiliar backgrounds. We drank it all in, giddily and guardedly at the same time. But what I thought was going to be a short, silent, incognito burp turned out to be a mouthful of cheesy vomit. I stopped, dropping my bag next to the wall and choked the burning, foul liquid down. It made my eyes water. I kept swallowing, trying to coat the inside of my throat with saliva. Then I realized that no one was passing me. When I turned around, sour-faced and disgusted, I saw that all the Bosnians were queued up behind me, waiting, all eyes. They had been following me. Even the few who had been walking ahead had stopped where they found themselves, looking over their shoulders. "'You're yeah, right there, Paul,' the harvest combine operator asked, carrying his blonde, blonde angel daughter in his arms like a sack of grain. His wife, a loose white headscarf over her head, was lugging two bags behind her and scowling. "'Sgarovica,' I managed, and they all made sympathetic faces, indigestion.' I picked up my bag and started walking again, swallowing. There was poison oak in my mouth, my throat, the middle of my chest. One part of me felt pride to have 50 people stopping when I stopped, going when I went. The other part was embarrassed by them, by their bucolic cluelessness, their needy, confused eyes. I fought the urge to run ahead and merge with the natives and the tourists, to ape their body movements, roll my eyes at the slowness of the line, pretend I cared about what time it was, and become one of them. The corridor spewed us into a huge room. A black woman in a uniform stood m- motioning with her f- with her hands, first to the right and then just as eagerly to the left. Her lipstick was bright red and you didn't have to be close to notice that some of it was on her teeth. "'Citizens and resident aliens, line up to the right. Everyone else, please keep left,' she said, impatiently eyeing a Bosnian family of six who, painfully baffled, planted their feet and gawked at her, holding up their Manila refugee envelopes like signs at a rally and impeding the flow of traffic. "'Go left!' I yelled ahead in Bosnian, and the family hesitated, turning to me. When I nodded, they lowered their envelopes and lined up to the left, checking to see if I really would follow suit.'" The right-hand line was moving fast. Immigration officers waved the Americans to their stations, opened their passports, shot some shit with them, stamped the stamp, closed the passport, and, smiling, welcomed them back. Pretty soon, the right side of the room was completely empty until another wave of Americans from some other flight crowded it again. The left side was uniformly compact with foreigners inching down a monotonous maze. At the front, stepping over the yellow line became an issue. Officers kept repeating their admonishments with disgust, and the refugees kept looking around the floor, wondering why the hell these Americans were yelling and pointing at the tiles, checking their pockets to see if they dropped anything important, shrugging their shoulders. When it was my turn at the yellow line, I stood as close to it as possible without going over like I was about to shoot a free throw. My heart rocked my body. I could feel its It's beat uh, beat behind my eyes, on the side of my neck, at the tips of my fingers, in my toes. For a moment I forgot about the rawness of my throat, about the putrid weight in my stomach, the bad taste in my mouth. I stared ahead at the please wait for the next available station screen, praying silently, sending good vibes and visualizing the perfect outcome. The screen changed to a flashing number 11. I swallowed and crossed the yellow line toward the station where a a young Sikh gazed at me politely but without emotion. I approached with a smile, psychically projecting Quranic verses instead of uttering them, and handed him my everything. Welcome to the United States. Good luck. I wandered out of the immigration maze on a pair of legs that weren't mine. There was a man with a sign in his hand that read Bosnia, a chicken of a man in gray woolen pants, an off-gray jacket and a long navy blue coat. He had one of those comprehensive foreheads that over the years creeps up to the t- top of the egg-shaped head and a pair of 80s style aviator eyeglasses, the top, of wh- the top of which were tinted and flush with the eyebrows, the bottoms drooped to the middle of his cheeks. At the end of the corridor, behind him was a uniformed cop, the last line of defense, whose forearms seemed rooted to his Batman utility belt. He was a huge redhead with the voice of a gargoyle, and hands that could squeeze a confession out of a sculpture. What nation is abusing us now? He boomed at the man with the sign, watching me come down the corridor. But seeing me slow down, the man disregarded the question and came toward me. Bosnian, he asked in Bosnian, and I, surprised, said yes in English. The combine operator and his wife attacked a man with a salvo of overlapping questions. As soon as they heard somebody speaking in a language they could understand, my fellow refugees turned their backs on me. I was instantly demoted from general of this ridiculous comedy to grunt, no one paying me any mind, some even pushing past me to get closer to this tiny man. I remember six months ago, on on the way to Scotland, aboard a ferry from some French town to Dover, my friend Omar and I had separated from the rest of the theater troupe and walked around the boat, crudely insulting everyone we encountered in our native tongue, terrified and giddy that we might stumble upon the one passenger who, realizing he'd been told he was pawned by an ass-eyed, donkey-raping water buffalo, would kick our heads in. If you're from Bosnia, let's get her over here, yelled the man with a sign. Um, Enes, I'm Ennis, I'm um, in from the Bosnian Consulate. Welcome to New York City. The majority of you are trying to catch a connecting flight, and I'm here to assist you in. The Bosnians went fucking crazy, speaking to him all at once, waving their tickets, their yellow immigrant envelopes, pushing to the front. Ennis tried to calm them down, down, shaking his head, shouting that he wouldn't help anyone if they didn't queue up. I felt a little sad witnessing this, so I pulled away. My flight wasn't until the next day, so I knew I would have to stay in New York overnight. I meandered a little way from the group, trying to look native. My stomach cramped up again. Um, my stomach cramped, and again I felt like I-, I could burp. Fooled once, I swallowed down some spit instead. The rats are a coming, said the redhead cop to a passing American who had n- uh, noticed the commotion. I glared at him, right into his green-blue eyes. He held my gaze. You speak English? He boomed toward me, overpronouncing. There's a word in Bosnian, zapuska, which is a culinary term for the finishing touch to a lot of Bosnian meals. It's golden butter melted in a pan with red paprika, a violently orange sauce, the exact color of the cop's hair, that is poured into stews and overstuffed peppers. Zapushka, I said to him, smiling my best fresh off the boat smile. A couple of Bosnians heard me and scoffed and chuckled at the insult. I know you understand me, yelled a cop, but I took my ticket out of my pocket, pushed myself in between two Bosnian women, and waved to attract Dennis's gaze. Hey it's a you on Los Angeles, I called. I sat there, people watching The shoulder strap of my bag wrapped around my ankle in case somebody tried to steal my wrinkled clothes and smoked beef and the sliver of it I was smuggling as a present to my uncle, stuff he couldn't get his hands on in California. After telling me to wait, Ennis had led the rest of the Bosnians away to catch their flights to cities like Nashville, Fargo, St. Louis. I sat there thinking I was cold. My jaw was jumpy. But the more I pressed my arms against my body, the more I became aware that it wasn't the cold making my teeth chatter. I looked around, people, shapes, braces, demeanors I'd never seen before. They were walking in groups or pairs or were at ease with their aloneness, purposeful, while I sat there trying not to puke. Other men with signs displaying the names of other sad countries, rolled by with gaggles of confused immigrants, yelling in exotic languages, leaving behind one or two other petrified saps who, like me, tried to occupy as little space as possible. There was a gangly black man in a black suit sitting with four veiled women resembling babushkas in a range of sizes, uh, pretending he knew what was up but clearly scared. Only a young African woman, in dark jeans and a white blouse, with closely cropped hair and shiny eyes, behaved with any sort of confidence. She took her seat, took a book and snack out of her carrion, something noisy by the look of it covered in salt, and proceeded to read and munch like she was in a, on a park bench. I wanted to lay my head in her lap, to be touched and told that everything was fine. Eventually, an airport shuttle, a smelly back-loaded van of some kind drove us through New York to where we were to spend the night. I caught only glimpses of the passing buildings, cityscapes and cars. The African woman was next to me and our thighs were warmly touching. Feverishly, I imagined her taking my hand in hers, looking deep into my eyes and loving me wordlessly. I could see us hugging, touching, holding each other, walking along the beach, cuddling on a love seat, checking on our sleeping brown babies with their slavic foreheads and African lips. Her, Here we are, the driver said. The van pulled into the parking lot of a dingy motel and shut us out of back. The driver said to prepare our documents and follow him inside. I could tell he did this all the time, his body familiar with the asphalt underneath his feet. He knew to pull the front door instead of push it, um, though there was no sign. You could see that he hated but tolerated the manager, a shaggy man of Arab descent, who asked me, how many in the room? One, one, I said, showing him my index finger. He looked at my passport and had me sign next to a name on a fax list. Then he shoved the key into my hand the orange plastic rectangle to which it was attached, red salmon. He pointed, then turned to the African woman. How many in the room? I lingered, acting like I was was having trouble picking up my bag, hoping to catch the number of her room, but the driver waved me over. Indian or Italian? Bosnian, I told him. He rolled his eyes. To eat, do you want Indian food or Italian food for dinner? I wanted to stomp on my own balls. Indian, I said, figuring there was less chance of, of, of ending up with a plate full of pork. We're leaving at six sharp. I will come and knock on your door. You should be um, up and ready, he warned, jotting down my choice. Rooms one through 14 were in the basement and I followed the arrows through holes lit here, here and there with chipped sconces that shot murky light at the ceiling in repetitive throbbing patterns. My room was in a corner, down the length of the c- corridor from a dazzling behemoth of a Pepsi machine. I unlocked a door and went in. Room 7 was surprisingly big, a king-sized bed with magenta sheets, a TV presiding, two nightstands with a lamp, and a table with two chairs and a phone. It smelled of orangey bleach and dust, of cover-ups and FBI sting operations, sex for money, and crimes of passion, alcoholic self-pity, and junk, junky visions, all the stuff I'd seen in American movies. <laughs> I tried to lock myself in, but couldn't turn the key. I tried in both directions, but it wouldn't budge. I opened the door, closed it, and tried again. Nothing. I looked at a peephole and saw two teenage girls giggling by the Pepsi machine. One of them them had a headscarf on and looked European. I wondered if she was Bosnian. She covered her mouth when she laughed. The other one looked Arabic, but was in a pair of ripped jeans, which exposed her scabby knees. Their faces glowed red and blue in turn. I'd always been a loner and proud of it. People were something you had to deal with or avoid. But now, standing on a worn patch of beige carpet on my first night in America, I longed for somebody, anybody. Then I felt my stomach turn. Somewhere in all of this, the cheese puke I'd kept down had somehow turned to shit. I ran to the bathroom, and it came out of me stormy gusts and thunderbolts. When I was done, I felt rejuvenated, glorious. <laughs> Still, I didn't want someone slipping, silently slipping in while I was asleep and cutting my throat, or even worse, knocking me out with a chloroform rag, turning me into a hustler rent boy, or forcing me to work 24 hours a day in an underground math lab. I didn't want to wake up missing, with missing kidneys, liver, heart, or eyeballs. I'm in America, I thought, and that meant I was in a movie. The fact that I, could lock, I couldn't lock the door from the inside was one of those little details upon which terrible plot shifts would depend. (laughs) I was paranoid. I looked through the peephole again, nothing but red, white, and blue lights telling me that I was thirsty. The girls were gone. I opened the door and studied the lock in vain. I dragged over the table and jammed it under the knob. To get in, the crackhead nutter would have to push hard, which would make a noise, which would wake me up, which was my best chance of survival. Now I needed a weapon. Someone knocked on the door, and my heart kicked against my ribcage like an angry baby. I looked at the peephole, the driver, I dragged away the table and opened the door. Indian? He said, looking over his paper. Indian, yes. He handed me a couple of styrofoam containers and put a check next to my name. Tomorrow morning at 6, he said, and made as if to go. "Uh," I started, and he stopped. What? My, um, my, my key, I stuttered. I, uh, I can't uh, lock the door on the inside. He looked at me with obvious disdain. It's automatic. You don't have to do anything. Just close the door and it's locked. Before I ate, I jammed the table against the door again, <laughs> together with the chairs and all my luggage. Fuck the driver, I thought. He might be in on a plan. <laughs> The shower had no faucet, just a knob in the middle of the wall and I couldn't figure out how to make it get hot if there was hot water in this place to begin with. The best I could do was not icy and I stepped in for a quick soap and rinse. By the time I was done two minutes tops, my lips were the color effect plant. Channel 4 was news. Fast, indecipherable English, I found comforting in the absence of flesh and bone humans. I shivered under the covers. I heard the click, click, clicking of women's shoes outside my window and snuck a peek through through the magenta curtains, up through a grate below the street. I saw a woman's legs and a big man in a mink coat holding both of her wrists and yelling at her. I'm fucking staying up all night, I told myself, but I awoke at 5.30 to the sound of the alarm, alive and unmolested, all organs intact. The driver drove us to the airport. The African woman sat behind me this time so I got to see some of the city. It was mostly New York motorists in profile, sipping from thermos bottles, yelling out of windows, smacking their dashboards, smoking, putting on makeup, singing, dozing off and waking up just in time to break, playing air guitar, looking at me with what the fuck are you looking at on their faces. Ennis met me at LaGuardia, showed me where I was to wait for my flight to Los Angeles, shook my hand limply and shoved off. I sat on another plastic chair and waited. I kept thinking, you made it, man, not believing it. I looked at my hand, this thing I'd been living with all my life, and it felt like I was seeing it for the first time. It seemed only vaguely familiar, yet I was somehow in control of it. It was my hand to use. I glanced up to make sure that what I saw around me was America, confirmed that the seat next to me was part of that country, then placed my strange hand on its cool plastic surface and told myself again, you made it, you escaped. Two other Persics made this journey before me. There was my granduncle uncle Bego, who fled the Nazi invasion via Paris, settled in an apartment in Flushing Meadows, and died there alone. And then there was my uncle Irfan, who fled the Communists in 1969, ended up in California, and 26 years later invited me to live with him. We were all from the same town in Bosnia, but had fled three completely different countries. Bego escaped the kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes. Irfan, the Socialist Federative Republic of Yugoslavia, and me, the newly formed independent state of Bosnia-Herzegovina, and says something about the Balkans. Regimes are plentiful. They don't last long, and they make people want to run away. What came to me then was the voice of my parental grandmother. She had told me once that every time Bego and Irfan returned to Bosnia to visit, they had seemed to her like different people, unrecognizable. She had blamed this on America. I looked at my hand again. Through the airport window, I could see a homeless man in a filthy camouflage jacket sitting on a curb, his back to me, playing fetch with a dog. He'd fight the plastic bottle of Dr. Pepper out of the Alsatian's mouth, tease her with it, and then throw it down the sidewalk. She'd chase after it, her swollen teeth swaying, bring it back to him, and the scene would repeat. I sat there mesmerized, telling myself again that I had made it, wished I had a dog something, or something warm to touch, to look in the eye. It was then that the morning sun sliced through the clouds, its light hitting the window in such a way that suddenly I saw my reflection. I saw a young man sitting alone on a plastic chair, white-knuckled and wide-eyed and zit-faced, happy and perplexed. And I knew why my grandmother couldn't recognize her own son, why I was wielding a stranger's hand. I knew that someone new would get off this plastic chair and board a plane for Los Angeles and that all the while an 18-year-old Ismet would remain forever in the city under siege in the midst of a war that would never end. Just as it came, the sun went away. The homeless man threw the bottle. The bitch ran after it. I looked at my hand, then at everything else. I was new and America seemed too big a place to be alone in. From the air, Los Angeles was vast and gray and pockmarked with light blue pools. Down at LAX, it was hot for a winter afternoon. It was amusing. There were palm trees to the terminal window and people wore sandals in earnest. Coming out of this one corridor, I saw a man and a woman in their fifties, white, dressed in shiny red, white, and blue frocks and top hats with stars, stars all over them. They walked through the crowd, handing, handing them things. The woman came up to me with an ear-to-ear smile. Hello, sir. Hello. Could I ask you a couple of questions? She was speaking slowly and clearly. I was glad about that. Yes. Where are you from, sir? Bosnia. Are you visiting us for the first time? I am a refugee. So you're here for the government cheese? She said this very loudly, looking around and trying to get everyone's attention. Well, sir, here you go, she said, and gave me a brick of yellow American cheddar. Welcome to America. I noticed that there was a man with a camera taping me. I smiled and waved the cheese at him. Isn't this something, I thought. In New York, they call you names, and in Los Angeles, a lady wearing the American flag gives you some cheese. I knew then that I was going to like Los Angeles much better than New York. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know nobody wants to ask questions, so I just answer questions that are not asked. Uh, right off the bat, what's up, Ian? How's it going, man? Eh? <laughs> okay. As far as I, as I understand, I didn't read it, before, but it
1: kind of gets uh, much darker um, as it goes on. Yeah. I I don't
0: know
1: if you if you use this intro the time in terms of are laughing here, too, yeah, get, to get it. us to um, then think and talk about a uh, war mm-hmm. in Bosnia and I wanted to ask how, how do you manage to write about um, something that a lot of people think of as unspeakable or it's often hard to think about well, yeah,
0: Okay, um, so the book is um, kind of has two different uh, 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 stories, and there's a story about Ismet Persik, which is named after me, but it's not me. And there's this other character Mustafa Nalic, who stays in Bosnia and fights. And um, I did this uh, willfully uh, because I don't, I don't like um, safe books. Uh, and, and it's not that i don't like them i enjoy them but um when you read a memoir it it like it's easy to um it's easy to take it because you're going to get um you know that the person writing it survived this thing so you know you go on a journey but you know that this person is writing it so that means they're you know everything is going to be okay at, uh, in in the end it makes us feel like oh this is you know it's safe so i'm kind of using that uh, in the beginning and this kind of seems like it's it's a it's a non it's a non fictional piece but it it isn't. None of those things happened, except for that I, you know, landed in New York and spent the night there. But everything else is just invented. But it seems like uh, like it's autobiographical, right? So then people go, "Oh, this is going to be an easy thing, right? It, it, you know, this person survived. Everything's going to be fine." But then that second guy. Mustafa comes in and completely fictional and kind of collapses into, into this other story, into Izzy story, and by the end you have no clue which one of them is real and which one is not. So I'm kind of, I think I'm uh, approaching writing this book as a, more like a director would do, like a, a film director or, or a theater director, to use everything at, at my disposal to make it visceral. So, you know, if you go in and you go, oh, this is easy, oh, it's going to be fine, and then, you you know, towards the end, the darker stuff, um, and you, you know, you have to use humor to kind of sell it. Even, like, Shakespeare's tragedies, always have a clown or somebody come in and start singing a song or, you know, making a joke. Uh, because you can't have... You know the best way to show horror is to show it against you know funny things, so then the horror pops up more you know and then the the, the humor kind of makes the the characters a little more um accessible and uh, gives us a little break in the midst of all the terrible shit <laughs> <laughs> oh i don't know it I think it's an ambiguous ending i don't i don't know what uh I can't tell you what happens <laughs> um but yeah, I mean, there's dark stuff in here, uh, for sure. But hopefully, it's also a, a nice nice ride. <laughs> there's also some humor, I guess. Yes? Yeah, I, was, uh, I have a friend, write screenplays, and I think this would be a great screenplay into a movie, uh-huh. be a thriller. And uh, I'm very interested in film screen- in films. I right, write music, I'm very interested in film music scores. And I think it'd be fantastic feature film, you know. It's I, a whole story. Uh, yeah, but how would you like? How would you cast that film <laughs> <laughs> if you have Ismet and you know? And then Mustafa, and there may be a doppelganger, and who's who's going to play it where and you know it would be impossible. maybe Gil Dennis can do it to somebody, <laughs> but it's, i don 't think uh i don't know i, I don 't know the way to do it. If I could do it as a movie, I probably would have done it, but no, I think the, uh fiction um, kind of uh, is, a, is a, allows you to um, attack uh, um, this kind of um this kind of stuff easier than a movie you know sometimes movie either trivializes the, the stuff or um, kind of glorifies the horror and, the, and you know the, the, the pain and the killing and all the stuff but in a in fictional the, you just have more space to uh, really get to um, you know to kind of capture that, that stuff in, in, in a novel uh, yeah what has it been like? Terrifying actually. Uh, I realized, you know, I'm not like, I don't, I almost like not consider, I don't consider myself a writer because I don't like get up and start like writing words in a paper just because I'm a writer. I realized that this was like, I needed to write this and like spent seven years writing it. And then now when it's over, I have other ideas that also deal with with you know with war and 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 identity and a performative nature of of identity gender all the stuff um, but it's harder to to write it because it's it's completely fictional you know so it's like I like I don't sit down and write something until I know um, until it's interesting to me until I'm trying you know trying to engage with the with something that I'm that I'm Fighting within my own life, you know, and then tr- transfer that and try to capture it in fiction. So it's been hard, yeah. I mean, I only wrote like maybe like two or three short stories and maybe like maybe 100 pages of the new book. While before, I would be writing all the time and throwing it away and writing it anew. And now I'm sitting there going tick, 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 and then D- delete, 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 tick, <laughs> tick, 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 you know, backspace, backspace, backspace. So, um, and I'm also terrified because it took seven years to write a book and then two years to get it out. And now I'm like, oh, so I'm going to have, have to spend nine years writing this other book. And I'm like, no, I'm going to try to kind of cut corners and try to like, you know, schedule it ahead of time. And like, but no, you, gotta, you just have to do it in your own time, so <laughs> I'll see you in nine years. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. Oh yeah. Yes, no, yeah, yeah, please.
1: Um, I just saw um, Alexander Hamlin's edition of two thousand twelve Best Fiction probably the
0: uh-huh.
1: best well known uh, uh-huh. Bosnian writer in
0: uh-huh. the United States and now you're here are
1: here. there are also others. Um the, uh, there's Angelina Jolie the
0: Ratman.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, are we having a, a Bosnian culture in immigrant moment here and are you
0: aware of other people working and in- uh, uh, n- I am not really connected with the Bosnian uh, diaspora here because I'm always kind of scared to meet new people because I always kind of had to, uh, like, I was trying to assimilate into the American culture. And if I hear Bosnian speak, I don't know what they think of me. Who did what to whom? You know. So I just kind of keep keep my mouth shut and just pretend I'm American, uh, which is hard with this with this forehead. Uh, <laughs> but. Uh, but uh, the interesting thing about Alexander Hammond is um, I, I was supposed to meet him in London, 2000. They had, um, they had a thing called Out of Bosnia, which was uh, every movie ever made in Bosnia, you know, uh, was shown in, in, in London that year and a bunch of, uh, I went with a the theater group and then every writer, you know, everybody was there and uh, but I was mad at my uh, the director. And I didn't want to go, so I faked an ulcer attack and stayed at home. And then he felt bad. He knew, he knew what he did. So then he came back, and he went to Alexander Hammond's reading, and he brought me a signed copy with, with his um, note in the back, kind of li- with his email address. And I was like, oh, and I would have some guy writing. And I started reading it, and I was like, oh, Motherfucker. Like he was, read, you know, writing my life, writing my stories. There was lines in it that were like my lines that I've written before, and like for a, 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 like a year I couldn't write at all, because because of this. And then slowly, after a while, I realized he has a different story. You know, his is mo- more like an immigrant story, looking, you know, watching the, the the war on TV, and mine was both out here and from within. So there's probably, you know a space for me to, to exist, right? And then I, I emailed him this long kind of love letter, just kind of like, dude, you're the best thing ever. I love you. You know, how do you do it? How do you make it, you know, all of these stories that are completely, like, weird, and you make them, ooh, whoa, you know, they're jagged, but you make you, you sell it so it actually makes you, you know, makes, makes it orderly. How do you do it? And then he wrote back and he said, um, I'm going to paraphrase, but he said something like, You have a life story and there is no form that exists for it already out there. You can't take life, that, which is all fucked up and amorphous, and shove it into a box that's nice and, and, you know, beginning, middle, and end and everything's great. You know, you have to find form that exists for the story that's in you. And I was like, Oh, so I can, you know, be kind of like a theater, you know, just go and rehearse and, you know, approach it as a, you know, um, kind of freely instead of trying to put it in a, in a, you know this is what how novels look like so that's kind of how I yeah he was he kind of gave me legitimacy in my own mind I was like oh yeah so I'll just go and like not structure the book ever and I'm just gonna put these pieces together and in, in, in whatever order and it's gonna be great and then I went to grad school and people were like this makes no sense this little <laughs> part is good this little part is good these two parts together don't make any, any sense and then I had to go and figure out how to put it in the right order which took like, whatever, three, four years. <laughs> yeah? Um, with all, like you were talking about how it would just like come out of you and you would get all these pages. And um, uh, How then, once
1: you've generated all that material, how what was, what were you thinking when you went back and you were deciding, okay, this is, this moment is significant or this part of the story is significant? I mean, when you're cutting
0: down that much material, how how? I had 850 pages right. and this is 390 pages. So then you just go and you, you know, find one that works, and then you leave it, and then you see, you have, you have three other ones that do the same thing that the first one did, and then you go, okay, so I don't need these three, because they're doing the same thing, I'm going to use them for something else later maybe, you know, or, you know, maybe we need a little bit, you know, a little bit of this later, so I'll put this, you know, in the middle of the book or towards the end, and, you know, and try to kind of balance it out. And then, I mean, there's 10 different versions, There was like, you know, shards 1.0, to shards Ten point eight that 's how many rewrites I did, and some of them were like okay so let 's put Ismet's story in the beginning and then followed by the Mustafa story, and that 's going to be it, and then it doesn 't work so, okay let 's put Mustafa's story in front and then put Ismet 's story in the end, and you know do the you know that kind of like um, uh, uh, Philadelphia fire thing no it doesn 't work that way okay let 's integrate it so let 's put a little bit of this, a little bit of that a little bit of the, you know so it 's like you just keep playing with it and go crazy and then show it to people and then somebody, yeah, and somebody says, oh, this works, but this kind of, is kind of dull and you go back and you realize, oh, yeah, I have 80 pages of, of the same thing. So you cut it down to, you know, 30 pages, even though my uh, playwriting teacher told me once I wrote a, I wrote a, a, a play and he, and he just wrote on, on, on one page, uh, this is boring. So when I went to the conference, I was like, okay, so, you know, so I'm going to cut this. He's like, no, 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 I didn't tell you to cut it. I just told you it was boring, so what am I going to do? He's like, no, make it like 10 pages. I'm like, what? I like, yeah, no, if you have it if if it's boring for one minute, it's boring. But if it's boring for ten minutes, suddenly it's not boring anymore. It's like <laughs> it's just, you know, there's it transcends the whatever. I'm sorry, I've started talking about talking about playwriting for no reason. Um, <laughs> But yeah, but it's a weird thing. Like, you get a second second uh, wind. If you read something that's boring and then there's a second wind and you go, start reading it in a different way, it's more, like more meditative and it's like, oh, there's a buzz in the background. I don't know. <laughs> yes? Okay, we're yeah. Okay. You're um, standing.
1: Have you received any, any kind of feedback of a sort of political nature or, you know, anything? I don't know if it's translated together or,
0: The amazing thing that happened was there was no political nothing. I haven't heard anything about. But what happened, so in this book, the book is all about what is real and what is not. Is Ismet, is this a real guy? Is this really happened to this guy? And Mustafa is kind of like the guy who stayed in uh, in Bosnia and, and fights, right, and fought. And then they collapse into each other, but at the end, you still don't know which one is which and who is real and who is not. I got an email message from Mustafa Nalic, who lives in London, who's from my town, and who fought in the war, and was wondering if I was, like, stealing his life. And I sent him the book, and uh, I was like, no, this is fictional. And then he was, like, picking out, like, little things out of, uh, you know, little... uh, excerpts that are published online and he's like, oh, my grandfather was also an imam or something like that. And I'm like, dude, don't worry about it. Just read the book. So, you know, I send him the book and then I got a nice little message from him. He's like, oh, thank you for the book and thank you for writing in it and, you know, my wife is reading it first and she can't stop, you know, I can't get uh, in line to read it. So, you know, I'll, I'll call you later, you know, when I'm, when I'm done reading. I'm like, okay, great. So we'll see what happens, but I think. Yeah, no, I kind of want to go interview him and have him like write his own story which would be crazy. So yeah, I invented a dude that exists. (laughs) (laughs) I did. It would be weird if he actually goes like, oh yeah, no, I, whatever, I don't want to give up plot points. There's no plot in this book, don't worry. <laughs> Anybody else? My favorite food is spaghetti. <laughs> um, you, are to, you are going to translate it into Bosnian? Um, if I translate it, yeah, I want to translate it into Bosnian, because I, I got uh, approached by the Croatian publisher who wanted to tr- you know a translator to translate into Croatian, but I'm like... I don't want to. I don't want that. If I, if it comes in, comes out in Bosnian, that it's going to be in Bosnian voice, you know. It like you know, Southern writers write in a Southern voice. You know, Irvine Welsh writes in Scottish dialect, but when you read it, you're constantly reminded that this it's about Scotland, about about Scottish people. You know, all of that stuff. So I, like, I want that voice to be it, which which would mean kind of re- writing the book again in a new language, which it's kind of daunting, especially when you're writing the other one. Uh, so. If I do it, it's gonna you know happen later on down the road when I when I hit when I get a a writer's block or something. I might start writing it in Bosnian. But uh, yeah, to my mother's chagrin.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Have you written creatively uh, in Bosnian?
0: No, it's. I mean, yes, I've written plays and things like that, but. Like when you, uh, I don't know how you guys do it, like you writers. Uh, like in, in Bosnian, I knew, I know, but like I, in Bosnian, I knew Bosnian so well that every single thing, every si- line that I would write, I would hate it because I know there's somebody smarter and better than me who can do it better and I would like, you know, fiddle with a, like one paragraph for years, you know, and like, you know, and then throw it away because I'm sick of it and I can't handle, you know, can't stand it anymore, but uh, in English I'm like, I'm just happy to make sense and it's like, (laughs) this is the only way I know how to say this, you know, and then over time you kind of learn the language a little better and then you start like, oh, maybe I can tweak it here, I can tweak it there, but it's like like, there's so many words I don't know, I have this huge dictionary, like Bosnian English dictionary and I just like open it at random and go like, laminate, I'm gonna use that you know. Oh, jival. ah, Okay, let's see what it means first. Oh, gothic-like. Okay, you know. Oh, I'll just put that in, and then people go, "You have a wonderful vocabulary." I'm like, "Nope, I have a really big dictionary that helps me and pushes me to you know put these words into the, into the, into the stories." we done? Or are you more? Any more
1: questions? Well, the books are for sale up at the front counter and that was awesome. That was a, just an awesome meeting. Thank you.
0: Thank you guys. Can I have some more water?